Well, good morning again. I, I have a, uh, a really good friend that anytime she has something difficult to say to some, someone or some ones, plural, something hard to say, something challenging to say, even a confrontation, she doesn't call it a confrontation. She doesn't call it a challenge. She doesn't say, I have something difficult to say. She just says, you and I need to have a little chit-chat. little chit-chat, because chit-chat sounds so much better than something hard or difficult or conf- confrontational, doesn't it? It just sounds so much more comfortable. So this morning, as your pastor, you and I, real quick, are going to have a little chit-chat. We're going to have a little chit-chat. In the 9 o'clock service this morning, we closed our infant room because we don't have the requisite volunteers uh, in our children's ministry. And so there's folks that uh, brought their infant into the service, maybe some folks that left I haven't heard. Uh, August 14th through 18th, we have our Baby Kids Summer Experience Maker Fun Factory Camp Planned. Uh, We have 200 kids registered. That's as many as our facility will handle. We actually have a waiting list right now. And over the next 48 hours, about 80 of those kids are going to get an email to say that we're not able to host them on our campus for that week because we don't have a requisite adult volunteers to meet ratios for our plan to protect policy, safety, and security for our kids, all that stuff. So here's the chit-chat, and I won't make this very long. Uh, We need some folks to step up. We need some folks to step up and say, you know what, August 14th through 18th, I'm going to serve as a crew leader for kids. I'm going to serve as a uh, a station host for kids. I I told Andy Notice, our family pastor, I will do that August 14th through the 18th, uh, serve as a crew leader for children if I need to. If if it takes away from sermon prep time and I'm not able to prep, I'll just show a video on that Sunday morning. I'm not kidding. Uh, Because here's the deal, Uh, the next generation of God's church is, is of utmost importance, isn't it? And if I asked you uh, this morning even, if I said to some of you, uh, are you concerned about the future of God's church? Uh, you would probably say yes. Yeah, I don't know what the next generation is going to hold and you know, what the world is looking like these days and how culture is changing and the definition of morality and all these things are changing. I'm concerned about the future of God's church. And we say that and then at the same time we don't serve the next generation of God's church. That's just hard for me. That's just confusing for me. And so um, that's it. That's, that's our chit-chat. I'm not a fear, guilt, and manipulation guy. I never have been. I know that stuff doesn't stick when you do something out of guilt. So my invitation to you this morning is to step up and step into the gap and serve and, and lead and shepherd and tell the next generation of God's church, including my kid, including my kid who turns three next month, that there's a God that loves them unconditionally and a hope for the future and a church family that they can be a part of. And so the way that you would do that is, is one of two things. One is you would jump on our website, bayviewglenn.org, click join a serve team, and right there at the top, you'll see opportunities to serve for our Bayview Kids Summer Experience Maker Fun Factory and step in and help for that week, August 14th through 18th. Uh, and then the other way that you could do that is talk to Andy Notice, who is our family pastor. He preached two weeks ago. You probably recognize him, but he's sitting right over here. And you can speak with him in our children's wing this morning, out those doors and to the right. Can the chit-chat be over now? Are we okay with that? Good. Okay, good. The second thing I have is some really great news. Uh, For the last couple of months, we, actually more than that now, a long time actually, we've been searching for a youth director to come on staff full-time here at Bayview Glen Church and step into the role of leading and serving and shepherding our youth, junior high and high school. And we actually extended an offer to an individual last week, and that individual accepted the offer and will be coming on staff August 13th here at Bayview Glen Church. And for some of you, yeah, that's really Really cool. You can clap for that. Um, And for some of you, uh, the face and the name might actually be really, really familiar. Would you welcome my friend Brandon Bernard to staff at Bayview Glen Church? (laughs) 
Uh, a couple of things about Brandon. First and most importantly, he is single. So if you're looking or know someone who is, um, was it five bucks or ten? What was it? It was ten, wasn't it? Yeah, you owe me ten. Uh, no, Brandon is a great guy. In fact, when I came to Bayview Glen Church, he was interning with our youth ministry at the time. And I asked Brandon, I said, do you want to do full-time vocational ministry and step into a staff position as a, as a leader and a shepherd of God's people? He said, you know what? I really don't. What I, what I want to do is work nine to five and then use all the rest of my time just serving, however I can serve. So you have seen Brandon lead worship up here on platform with Andy. You've seen him serve in our youth and children's ministry for the last four years. I've seen that. You've seen him serve in any way, shape, or form. I mean, I'm telling you, uh, if you need something, you call Brandon, because Brandon is always down to help and serve and give, and that's what he's been doing for the last four years. But over the last couple of months, uh, people have been going to Brandon and going, Brandon, you, you're on youth staff. This youth director thing, this is really you. I mean, you're so good at this. You have a natural way with youth and, and you, all the, you know, the passion and, and just the way to connect with youth. I mean, that's just how God made you. And so really what happened is the body of Christ came around Brandon and started to affirm a call of God in his life. And he started to say, you know what? Maybe God is calling me to full-time ministry. Maybe God is calling me to leave my marketplace job and step into this role. And when he said that, uh, we put him through all the paces of interviews with me and with Andy and the resume and all that stuff, passed all those things with flying colors. I have personally seen Brandon mature a lot over the last four years, and I can't wait. And like, this is, this is really, this is hard as a parent, but, um, and maybe probably even hard for you. I would never, ever, ever hire someone or support hiring someone that I wouldn't entrust my own kid to. You know what I mean? Does that make sense? And I want for my kid, Kaya, when she's in junior high and high school, to serve under Brandon's leadership. That's how much I think of him and that's how excited we are about that. So would you welcome Brandon one more time to staff? What that means over the next couple of months is we're going to have more and more youth events and even a specialized Sunday morning service for our junior high and high school students. That's coming down the line. Parents, I know you've been wanting that a long time. Be patient with us. Brandon's going to be starting here in a couple weeks, and we'll get that up and running. But before we do any of that, it's most important that we go to the Word today. So let's pray together and invite God to speak to us. Oh, God, uh, would you speak uh, in and through uh, your servant this morning? God, may your voice be the only voice that is heard here, and would you remind us of your goodness and your faithfulness, and give us more and more reasons to celebrate, even as we look into your word today. In the name of Christ, the people of God, together said, amen. Have you ever heard someone say this before, that there's no such thing as a stupid question? You ever heard somebody say that before? This is a lie from the pit of hell, I'll tell you this right now. There are all kinds of stupid questions out there. Parents, have you ever been on a road trip with your kids and your kids are in the back and what's the question they ask you over and over and over and over? Are we there yet? That's right, that's a stupid question. If we were there, we'd be stopped, you morons. Uh, are we there yet is a stupid question. I asked my, my brother, got a tattoo a couple weeks ago, I asked my brother this. Did it hurt? Does it hurt? It's like, of course it hurt. They took an electric guitar string, hooked it up to a lawnmower engine, put ink on it, and stuck it in my arm for two hours. Yes, it hurt. That's a stupid question. I Googled this week stupid questions that people have asked Google. You would not believe some of the stupid questions people have actually typed into Google and searched for. Look at this. Uh, what's the phobia of chainsaws called? Common sense is what the phobia of chainsaws is called. It's not called chainsaw phobia. It's called don't touch it. It'll slice your arm off. Uh, here, here's one that someone actually typed into Google now. If you ate yourself, if you ate yourself, 
Would you be twice as big or disappear completely? <laughs> you know? Like some of you are like, that is spiritual, man. That is crazy. Uh, someone actually typed this one into Google. Are, are there gravity in India? One of our tech volunteers, his name is Ashish, he's, he's from India, and I asked him beforehand, and he confirmed, no, there's no gravity in India, that's why we've all moved to Canada. So people are just floating around, just floating around, and that's not my joke, that was an Indian's joke, by the way, so blame it on him. Uh, the title of today's sermon is simply this, Beware of the Stupid Question. Beware of the Stupid Question. Here we are in John chapter 7, and what happens is Jesus starts to vindicate his own identity by teaching and instructing, and and. And the Pharisees, the, the religious leaders, and the crowds begin to ask him some stupid, stupid questions. And listen, real closely here, God loves questions. God loves questions. He loves honest questions. He loves sincere questions. He loves hard questions. You got hard questions for God? He loves to hear those. He even loves angry questions. Can you believe that? In the scripture, we actually read people coming to God and say, why is this happening? God loves those questions. He loves to walk us through questions. That's not what I mean by stupid questions. Here's the stupid question that the crowds begin to ask Jesus, and there's five of them that we're going to look at this morning, is questions that are agenda-driven. They're questions designed to reject the authority of Jesus in their life, and they're not real questions, you know what I mean? They're not real questions. They're just walls that these folks are putting up to say, I don't want any part of you. I don't want to have to respond to your authority. I don't want to have to follow you. I don't want to have to believe in you. I don't want to have to place my active trust in you. So I'm going to ask this question as if it's a real question. It's not a real question. It's a stupid question. Because it's based on an inaccurate assumption about who Jesus is, who God is, and how the world works. So we're going to take a look at those five questions this morning. But just by way of review, let's remember where we've been. We're in the book of John, and John states his purpose in John chapter 20, verse 31. He says, these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and by believing, have life in his name. Remember, John uses this word believe over a hundred times in the book of John, and he means active trust. It, you, I've written these things in this book so that you would place your active trust in Jesus the Christ, the Son of God, and by placing your active trust in him, you would have life in his name. Now, we've summed up John's purpose in a number of different ways, but I want to sum it up today with an if-then statement. What John says is, if, you play, if Jesus is the Christ and, the, and God, the Son of God, then active trust gives life. If Jesus is these two things, Christ and God, then active trust in him will bring you and give you life. And what John wants to do in his book is change this word if to since. Since Jesus is Christ. And God. He wants us to know that and believe that, place our active trust in him, to know for sure that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and by believing, have life in his name. He continues that purpose in John chapter 7 when he records Jesus' conversation again with the Pharisees and the crowds, and they ask him stupid, question, stupid questions when Jesus is at the Feast of Weeks. The Feast of Weeks, Kevin talked about this last week, but just by way of review, was a feast where the nation of Israel would remember the time when they had left slavery in Egypt, God had rescued them from slavery in Egypt, and they wandered through the wilderness. In other words, they no longer had a permanent home. They just had a temporary home. So in September of every year, at the end of the harvest or during the harvest, all of Israel, all of Jerusalem would move out of their permanent homes and build temporary homes. They would build booths. This feast was also called the Feast of 
booths or the Feast of Tents or the Feast of Tabernacles. They would build a temporary home and live in it for a week just to remember, hey, we've not always had a permanent home. We now have a permanent home, and let's remember what it felt like to have a temporary home. So everybody goes to Jerusalem to celebrate and remember and celebrate the harvest. And Jesus didn't go up right away. He went up a few days into the feast, and he hadn't been to Jerusalem in about a year and a half at this point. So Take a look, or picture this with me. It's hot as it can be because September in Jerusalem is very, very hot. And it's during this feast of weeks where all Jerusalem is kind of a shanty town and nobody's living in their permanent dwelling place. A couple weeks into the feast, Jesus shows up and he begins to teach in a formal way. And the Pharisees and religious leaders, instead of saying, man, this guy's sharp, he's really got some good things to say. They're looking at each other going, we didn't teach him any of this. Where did he learn this? He must be plagiarizing. And rumors start to fly and circulate about Jesus all around Jerusalem. And right about that time, the crowds enter into the picture, not the religious leader, but everybody enters into the picture and begins to ask Jesus some really stupid questions designed to be a defense for their own rejection of him. Pick it up in John chapter 7, verse 25. It says, some of the people of Jerusalem therefore said, Is this not the man they, that's the religious leaders, seek to kill? This is Jesus, right? This is the one they're all plotting to murder. And they were already plotting his murder. They're looking at him going, isn't this him? And here he is speaking openly, and they say nothing to him. So Jesus is standing up and teaching in a formal way, and the people that are plotting his murder don't say anything to him. Now, if you were the crowds, And you were standing there, and you knew full well they want to kill that guy. And they don't do anything to him. What would you assume or think or conclude? Maybe they know something we don't, right? Look what they say. Can it be that the authorities really know that this is the Christ? They're not doing anything to him. They want to kill him. They're plotting to murder him, but they're not doing anything to it. Can it be that they really know? But see, these religious leaders, maybe they knew, but they did not place their active trust in Jesus. Those are the ones that plotted to kill him. And this is not one of our stupid questions this morning, but this is something that's just come up in the book of John over and over and over. It's woven through about every verse and every chapter in the book of John. Simply this, knowing and believing are not the same thing. They knew who he was. They knew his identity, and they still strung him up. They still crucified him. See, is knowing and believing are not the same thing. Remember, John is not uh, aiming that we would know that Jesus is the Christ. Yes, he wants us that. He wants us to know, but he wants us to place our active trust in him. But these folks, the crowds and the religious leaders, they don't want to place their active trust in him, so they begin to ask stupid questions. Here's our first stupid question. They say, can it be that the authorities really know that this is the Christ, but we know where this man comes from, and when the Christ appears... No one will know where he comes from. A couple of things here, and this is very interesting. The first is this, that this idea, no one will know where the Christ comes from, this is not a biblical idea. Those of you who are familiar with the Old Testament, you know, where is the Christ to come from? Bethlehem, the city of David, right? But this is kind of this messianic gobbledygook, this kind of like, this this fable or tale that arose in the nation of Israel at the time when the, when the Messiah shows up, nobody's going to know where he comes from. And, 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 look, this is crazy. Even the Christ himself will not know where he comes from. 
Like he's going to get to be 30 years old or 40 years old. Like, Where do you come from? I don't even know. That's what arose in Jerusalem at the time. And they're saying, no one will know where he comes from, but we know where this guy's from. He's from this podunk, nowheresville town that doesn't even show up on provincial maps, Nazareth in Galilee. And so what they're saying is, is this really the Christ? Is he really the promised one? Is he really the Messiah? And their answer is, no, he's not really the Messiah. Why? Because he's not popular. And popular is better than unpopular. That's their core assumption. He's not popular. He's not from here. He doesn't have a heritage. He doesn't have a pedigree. We'll talk about that a little bit more in a minute. He's not been taught by us. He's not a religious leader. He didn't go through the right schools. He's certainly not from the right town because he's from this nowheresville, you know, podunk town, like I said, Nazareth in Galilee. He is not popular. Therefore, he's not right. Do you see their core assumption? That's a bad assumption. It's a bad assumption, and it causes them to ask a stupid question, is this the Christ? And because human nature has not changed much in the last 2,000 years, we ask core questions like this, really stupid questions like this, a lot, and they're based on this goofy assumption that popular is right. If something is popular, it's good, it's helpful, it's constructive, it's right. And if it's not popular, it's not good, it's not helpful, it's not constructive, it's not right. And you might think, well, I don't do that. I don't do that. Yes, you do. How many of you have been in the church for over 20 years, been going to church, around the church for over 20 years? Remember prayer of Jabez? How many of you remember prayer of Jabez? Okay, it wasn't right. There's good stuff in there. There's good stuff in there. I met Bruce Wilkinson, nice guy. Like, there's good stuff in there. But because it was so popular, everybody was like, gets on this train of reading the prayer of Jabez or reading Purpose Driven Life because it was so popular. Everybody read Purpose Driven Life. I love Purpose Driven Life. I've never met Rick Warren. If anybody of you know him, I would love to meet him, by the way. That's beside the point. But it got so popular, and everybody just kind of went to this thing and flocked to these things. And, 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 and what happens is it begins to skew our theology, and it skews our view of God, like Andy Noti said a couple of weeks ago, we, we, we start to create a view of God that's comfortable and not correct based on pop theology. Same thing happens for those of you who are not theists, for those maybe who are atheists. There's a pop atheism that's out there that's basically tabloid atheism that is not intellectually honest, not sincere, and completely ridiculous, by the way. Guys like Chris Hitchens and Richard Dawkins, who have written very, very popular books and they're New York Times bestsellers, and everybody thinks they're awesome because they're popular. I'm reading a book right now by a guy named David Bentley Hart, who is not popular, by the way, but he's brilliant. He's a scholar, and he's a theologian, and he's been around a long time. And listen to what he says about these new atheist texts, new atheist movements. If you don't know who Chris Hitchens and Richard Dawkins are, that's fine. But if you know who they are, let me just take them apart for you for a minute, okay? Listen to what David Bentley Hart writes. He says, the new atheist texts, and he mentioned these guys, mentions these guys, are nothing but lurchingly spasmodic assaults on whole armies of straw men. Manifestos, buoyantly coarse, and intentionally simplistic. Now, if you knew what those words mean, you would laugh out loud, because I did when I read the text. But look what he says. Why are they so, po why are they so popular? He says, I doubt posterity will be particularly kind to any of them. That's the new atheist text or the new atheist movement. Once the initial convulsions of celebrity have subsided. They're, they're popular. That's why people buy into them. Not because they're good, not because they're right. Because they're popular. So listen, church people, just close your ears for a minute, just for one second here, okay? Non-church people, especially atheists, 
I disagree with the conclusion that there is no God. I disagree. But there is an argument for it. It's a cogent argument. It's a logical argument. It is not a convincing argument for me. I'm a pastor. I believe that there's a God, okay? But please, if you're an atheist, do not quote Richard Dawkins and Chris Hitchens for the sake of your atheist conclusion. That's like quoting the Kardashians at your wedding. You know what I mean? It's like not... This is not what you want to do. And we've bought into it simply because it's popular and not because it's right. Let's be a people who ask sincere and honest and intellectually curious questions, who have real discussions about stuff rather than just buying into tabloids, okay? Because we don't want to make the same mistake that the crowds did 2,000 years ago and they missed out on Jesus. And they missed out because for them, popular was better than unpopular. It's not a good assumption. Let's keep reading, verse 27, 28. So Jesus proclaimed as he taught in the temple. Can you just hear Jesus' tone here? You know me. You know where I come from. Good for you. That's not in the text. That's just me. But I have not come of my own accord. He's starting to talk about his heavenly father here. He says, he who sent me, my heavenly father is true, and him you do not know, I know him. And I come from him, and he sent me. Stupid question number two. They were seeking to arrest him. No one laid a hand on him because his hour had not yet come. Do you see God's sovereignty and providence and control even in the crucifixion of his son? Jesus says, no one takes my life from me. I give it up of my own accord. They couldn't even take his life from him. That's amazing to me. Yet many of the people believed in him. They said, when the Christ appears, here's the stupid question, will he do more signs than this man has done? Stupid question number two, will he do more signs? And so there's a group of people that conclude, you know what, he's fed 5,000 people, actually more than that, Kevin pointed that out for us, thank you Kevin, Uh, he's turned water into wine, he's taught, you know what, nobody's gonna come after him and do more signs than this guy. I mean, there is no way, he's already vindicated himself, he's already proved himself, he doesn't need to do anything more, I will place my active trust in Jesus, but Not all believed, only many, do you see? Many believed. You see, for some folks, they ask this stupid question, can he do more? Can he do more? Next slide, if you would. Can he do more? And the underlying assumption that's a wrong assumption here is that he hasn't done enough. I'll be honest with you, God has already done so much to demonstrate his existence. Jesus has already done so much to demonstrate his identity. He doesn't need to do anything more. And when we come to God with stupid questions that are basically designed to say to God, prove it. Prove it to me. Prove you exist. Prove you're in control. Prove it. Prove it. Fix my marriage. Fix my finances. Not because I long to be more like you, but because I want you to prove it to me. Can you do more? You know, folks like that don't see miracles very much, if at all. But folks who come to God with a sincere heart and a longing to say, I want to see you, God. I want to see you every day. Will you do more? Not to prove yourself. Not to prove yourself. I just want more of you. I want to see you in everyday simple things in life. I was at the park yesterday, and my daughter and I were walking around bothering people and the other things we do at the park, and there's a butterfly, a beautiful, like, orange and black butterfly. I don't know what kind it was. It was beautiful. I said to Kaya, look, look, it's, it's just a miracle flying around the park. Do you see how much God has already done? He's already done so much. He doesn't need to do anything more to prove himself. He is faithful and good and kind, and we can celebrate him for that, for that reason. 
See, for those who go to God and say, prove it, prove it. God says, you don't you know the scripture says don't put your Lord your God to a test? He's not real interested in us ripping him down from his throne and putting him to test over our scrutiny. He's already done plenty. Let's keep reading, stupid question number three. The Pharisees heard the crowd muttering these things about him. They're whispering, murmuring among themselves. And the chief priests and Pharisees sent officers to arrest him. They're officers in the temple. The temple, the Jewish temple in first century had its own kind of police force and judicial system. So they send those officers to arrest Jesus. Jesus then said, I will be with you a little longer and then I'm going to him who sent me. You will seek me, and you will not find me. Where I am, you cannot come. The Jews said to one another, here's the stupid question, number three, where does this man intend to go that we cannot find him? Does he intend to go to the dispersion among the Greeks and teach the Greeks? What does he mean by saying, you will seek me, and you will not find me, and where I am, you cannot come? See, their assumption is wrong, their core assumption is wrong about how the world works and what actually exists in the world we live in. Because here's their question, where is he going? Where is he going that we can't find him? And do you see where they guessed he might go? He might go to the dispersion among the Greeks, he might go teach the Greeks, he might go teach Jews outside of Jerusalem, where is he going to go? See, their assumption is there is nothing more than just what we can see. There is nothing more than we can experience with our five senses. There's not a spiritual world. There's not a heavenly world. There's not another world. Jesus looks at them and goes, no, 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 no. That's not where I'm going. Where I'm going is to my heavenly father where he rules and reigns on his throne. And you've got to wrap your head around the fact that there is more to this world than just what you can experience with your five senses. In fact, the Pharisees who's, who are listening here did not believe in a resurrection from the dead at all. They didn't believe in an afterlife at all. So they're going, well, it can't be an afterlife. It can't be more. It can't be something other than this world. And we make the same mistake now. We assume that there's nothing more than this world. That's why we get caught up in materialism. That's why we get caught up in buying that new car, going on that next vacation, or whatever brand we're wearing on our shirt. We get caught up in that because we get so focused on the material world and what we can experience in the here and now, we forget that there is a hereafter for eternity. And we make decisions on the here and now and, and ask stupid questions as a result and miss out on Jesus and miss out on God and miss out on the life he brings because we're too worried about acquiring and amassing. Jesus reminds us there is so much more than just what you can see in the here and now. Remember that. Remember that because that's where I'm going. Keep reading. So on the last day of the feast... The great day, this is when everything concluded for the Feast of Booths, Jesus stood up and cried out. Didn't cry like, eh, cry, but like yelled, hey, declares. And this is the crux of the passage, right? This is the, this is the crux of the passage. We're gonna come back to this and conclude with this because this is what's most important. Jesus says, if anyone thirsts, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now this he said about the Spirit whom those who believed in him were to receive, those who believe will receive the Spirit, for the Spirit had not yet been given because Jesus was not yet glorified. The Spirit's already at work. The Spirit's already um, doing things and alive and alive from uh, eternity past. But Jesus is saying it's not, the Spirit is not yet given in full. 
The Spirit has not yet been poured out. That's the day of Pentecost. So when they heard these words, some of the people said, this is really the prophet. Others said, this is the Christ. But some said, stupid question number four, is the Christ to come from Galilee? Has not the scripture said that the Christ comes from the offspring of David and comes from Bethlehem? Remember, these are the same people that just said like 10 verses ago, no one's going to know where he comes from. He's going to show up like an apparition and just like materialize out of nowhere and he won't even know where he comes from. This is the same morons that are not asking real questions, they're asking stupid questions in order to defend themselves and reject the authority of Christ. So there was a division among the people over him. Some of them wanted to arrest him, but no one laid hands on them. Here's their question. What's his pedigree? What's his pedigree? He's from Galilee. How can he have the right parentage? How can he have the right history? How can he have the right education? I want to know who his dad was. I want to know who his mom was. I want to know who his grandparents were. I want to know if he's been to the right school. I want to know if he's been trained. I want to know what is his pedigree. And the conclude, or the assumption that's causing them to ask this foolish question is that pedigree is what's most important. Because Jesus would come along and say, hey, check this out. Pedigree actually is important. It is important that I'm from the city of David in Bethlehem. That is really critical because that's a fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. But this whole deal of like you're from a, a, a province that nobody knows and kind of obscure and you need to go to the right schools and you need to have the right pedigree, that is not what's important. Those things might be helpful, but what's most important on an individual's life is the call of God. That's what's most important. So for those of you who are here and you may think you're walking with Jesus or following Jesus or kind of in the fold and what you trust in is your pedigree. Well, my parents, you know, they, 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 they've been here a long time. My grandparents, man, they, they, they started this church or I, I come from a long line of preachers or if you're trusting in your pedigree, that's an incorrect assumption and it will cause you to ask foolish questions and come to very foolish conclusions. For Jesus and for us, pedigree is not what's most important. What's most important is the call of God and the presence of God and our heart response to him. I don't know about you, but that's freeing for me. I'm so glad that that's what's most important, God's call on my life and my heart response to him. It gives me hope. Let's keep reading. The officers then came to the chief priests and Pharisees who said to them, why did you not bring him? Okay, so the officers are sent to arrest him because he's teaching publicly, and they don't arrest him. And the chief priests and Pharisees say, why didn't you arrest him? And they say, no one ever spoke like this man. Like, you should have arrested him. Where is he? And their response is, he's so good at teaching. It's unbelievable. You guys got to come hear this. It's just so compelling. Which is amazing to me. I just love that Jesus, I mean, Jesus doesn't fight back. He doesn't, you know, scratch and claw. He doesn't say, hey, these officers are here to arrest me. Followers, take them away. You know, everybody riot or whatever. He just teaches. He just instructs. And the officers are going, I can't arrest this guy. He's too good. So listen to what the chief priests and Pharisees say back to him. I love this. They answered them, have you also been deceived? Have any of the authorities or the Pharisees believed in him? But this crowd that does not know the law is accursed. What are they asking here? Have the religious leaders or the authorities believed in him? I want to know if there are any cool kids that follow Jesus. I want to know if the religious leaders, the professionals, 
I want to know what their response to Jesus is. In other words, they're asking, who are his followers? Who are his followers? I need to know if, if I can trust his followers. Here's the reality. Followers of Jesus, we have a responsibility to represent him well. We do. We don't always do a good job, do we? People say all the time, man, the church is full of hypocrites. My response is there's always room for one more. We need to start another service for you. That's great. We will. But there's always room for one more. So I get that. I get that it's hard. I get that sometimes Jesus' followers get in the way. But listen, you don't vote the way you vote because you know people who vote that way. You don't parent the way you parent because you looked at someone else and go, I kind of like them, so I'm going to copy their parenting. That's not how you do things. You do those things because you feel and know that they're right in your conscience. See, same thing goes for Jesus. The question is not, who are his followers? Are there any cool people that are his followers? Are there any athletes that are his followers? Like, what do I think of his followers? We do this all the time in the church. I'm telling you, we do this all the time. Like, especially when pop stars, I don't know what it is about it, but female pop stars even, when they very first come out, don't you always hear rumors that so-and-so is Christian? Don't you always hear, like I remember Britney Spears, when she first came out, hit me baby one more time. I think she's a follower of Jesus. Like Jessica Simpson and Katy Perry and everybody, because we need cool kids to follow Jesus. And if cool kids aren't doing it, then I'm not gonna do it. Who are his followers? I wanna know. And the assumption that drives it is followers make the man. By this time in Jesus' life, Jesus doesn't have that many followers. But if I asked you, just objectively speaking, what single individual has made the most impact on human history, even if you're not a Jesus follower, even if you're not a theist, you would almost certainly say, Jesus of Nazareth. And he didn't, he didn't have that many followers, really. And here we are 2,000 years later, give or take, talking about him. Followers don't make the man. Listen to me, the man makes followers. And he changes us each and every day. See, this is a silly question. It's a silly question driven by an inaccurate assumption. Let's finish the text, and then I want to go back to the crux of the text where Jesus stands up and cries out. Here we go. It says, Nicodemus, this is John chapter 3. Remember Nicodemus that Jesus talked to in John chapter 3? Now he's going, oh man, this guy who I really like and was really helpful to me is now in trouble, so I'm going to try to bail him out. Watch, watch what he does. Nicodemus, who had gone to him before and who was one of them, that's the Pharisees, said to them, does our law judge a man without first giving him a hearing and learning what he does? Like he wants him to have a trial, right? He wants him to have a fair trial. They replied, are you from Galilee too? <laughs> Accusing Nicodemus of being from Galilee. Nicodemus is going, you know where I'm from. Like I've lived here all my life. Search and see that no prophet arises from Galilee. And so Jesus' conflict with the religious leaders continues to escalate and continues to escalate and continues to escalate and it will end in John chapter 20. And they kill him. Let's go back to the crux of the text because I think it's instructive for us this morning. Jesus says, uh, uh, John says, on the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out. If anyone thirsts, I love this word. I love this word. He says, if, if you really want to know me, if your heart really longs for me, bring your questions. Bring your honest questions. Bring your sincere questions. Bring your hard questions. Bring your angry questions. Bring them. If you desire me, if you thirst for me, bring them to me. If anyone thirsts, come see my followers. Come to church. No, 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 no. Come to me, Jesus says. Come to me. And I'll fulfill that thirst and that longing. Whoever believes, Jesus says, 
whoever places his active trust in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart, out of your heart and mine, will flow rivers of living water. So instead of coming to Jesus with this posture of defense, asking stupid questions so we don't have to respond to his authority or his role, asking him to prove it, asking him, well, who are your followers? We, our heart's desire is to come to Jesus with a true thirst and a true longing and say, oh God, thank you for being a God who answers questions, who loves questions, and teach me to release my core assumptions and release my resistance so that I come to you with a true thirst and longing and that I would see out of my heart would flow rivers of living water. Let's pray together and we'll respond and sing. God, thank you for the opportunity to worship you today, for your goodness to us and your grace. We are so grateful for your presence in this place and the opportunity to celebrate today. Teach us, oh God, to be a people who thirst, not a people who hold tightly to inaccurate assumptions, who hold tightly to our own resistance, but a people who release those things so that we might know you and believe in you, the Christ, the Son of God, and by believing, have life in your name. In Christ's name, the people of God together said, amen. Hey, let's stand and respond as we continue to worship together.